0: Hello and welcome to Caged In, a podcast where we look at the career of Nicolas Cage to find out whether he is the greatest actor of his or any generation or if he is the meme that he has so much become on the internet. And this week we will be looking at not one but two films. That in Paul Schrader's Ill Fated, Dying of the Light and then his unauthorised Rogonzo director's cut that he made whilst making First Reform. And I will be joined today to find out whether directors should get the final cut or not by Anna Bogutskaya, a film programmer and avid podcaster. It's an absolute joy, this one, and um, I won't go on too much at the start. But one one thing that we haven't had in a while, just because the film titles have been so short... And I guess you can make your mind up on this, whether you've seen the film. And I'll have a little bit to say at the end, if you listen to the outro. And that is from my friend, The Anagram Hunter, which is Thomas underscore W underscore Hunter on Twitter. And his anagram for dying of the light is highly gifted. Not. Well, already, I would say you could argue that... uh, Paul Schrader has proved himself to be highly gifted, as has Nicolas Cage. But I guess a lot of detractors would say not. And yeah, just a spoiler warning up front as well. If you haven't seen this film, then go and watch it. Uh, Dark is probably a lot harder to find than Dying of the Light. I know in the UK, if you are listening, you can find dying of the light on amazon prime at the moment whereas dark uh yeah you might have to go to some uh more extreme lengths to find that i won't say what they are but yeah you can figure it out so uh yeah enjoy my brilliant chat with anna and uh i'll chat to you guys at the end make sure to listen right to the end as well because there's a little competition for you guys Cage plays CIA agent who is diagnosed with frontal temporal dementia but still needs to track down his nemesis, a man himself who is dying. So it is a battle for Evan Lake to track down this man before he forgets or his enemy dies. Paul Schrader took things into his own hands with this movie, giving Lionsgate the biggest fuck you by recutting the movie Dying of the Light into his version, Dark. To find out if Paul Schrader made the right choice, I'm joined by the Underwire Festival director, co-creator of The Final Girls, and co-host of The Next Supremes podcast, Anna Bogutska. How are you, Anna?
1: Hi there. Um, I'm really good. I'm excellent. Thank you so much for having me on to talk about this Nick Cage movie that I had never heard of before. (laughs)
0: That, well that's that's one of the things that's been for me whilst doing this is like i yeah it's weird reaching out to people because they probably guess that like I'm some kind of nick cage fanatic, but like i i had I'd pretty shamedly not seen that many before I started doing this podcast, and it was more the fact that he had made so many movies in such a short space of time that drew me to him, and like yeah this one I'd never seen before in fact, thank you for mm. picking it because it's it's it, it taps into a lot of the lot of the things I'm into and in just what I find fascinating about cinema and this kind of unrealized projects and I don't know especially something yeah what's your view on the current like topic of like discussion a lot and kind of big in the news of this like recut culture we've kind of
1: like live in now? What do you mean by recut culture?
0: Well, you know, like obviously like it's the big thing of release the Schneider cut or like there's David Ayer. Oh. It's this kind of it's it's yeah. now we had like the fans are demanding that or directors are kind what? of like
1: it's funny, it's funny you should bring it up, because I was just thinking about kind of fan culture today and quite a lot recently in general. And the Snyder cut is kind of partly why, but I mean, the, the whole concept of the director's cut of the director versus the studio system is not really a new one. You mm-hmm. know, like, let's let's just make that clear. Zack Snyder did not invent Oh yeah, yeah, No, 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 cut. I just mean it's, like, <laughs> so, it's kind of backing, no, I mean, like... Oh, yeah, yeah, no, I totally get it. And it kind of, it's quite interesting because that obviously, that, the Snyder cut, it has an interesting backstory in its own right. And the fact that he was unable to complete his vision of the film uh, and had to leave the the project because of uh, of a personal tragedy. So it, it's it's kind of different in the sense that he's getting a chance to finish the film mm-hmm. that he started making. So it's slightly different in the way that you know the the idea of the director versus the studio of yeah, like yeah. I demand creative control, I demand final cut. You know this idea of the final cut, which is like it's really associated with the idea of the auteur and the idea of the directors, like the ultimate visionary for the film, that they're the ones that need to um, put the final touches of it. And obviously it's, it's, it's a bit of a tension point, especially in a studio system that is essentially entirely financing a film and is you know, very often commercial films, mainstream films are pre-sold to several international markets. You know, they're already kind of committed a particular vision of the film to buyers. So demanding creative control in that scenario becomes quite a tense negotiation. And it really it really depends on who the studio is, who the producers are, and who the filmmaker is as well. And like how much are they going to play ball and how much are they gonna, you know, want to make something that is for themselves as opposed to be a gun for hire. And it's quite interesting, like there's filmmakers who have very particular and personal visions of their films but also do quite a lot of sort of come for hire work like directing for tv or directing more commercial studio pictures and you know when they kind of know it and this this film that we're gonna talk about is kind of an example of that Of you know you've been hired to deliver something that's kind of very boxed in and by the book, or on the contrary, you're hiring a director who doesn't do that sort of work. So you kind of need to know what you're getting yourself into. But I don't know. I'm quite fat I'm, I'm quite interested in the idea of what is the the final cut of a movie because you know Blade Runner is a really good example. <laughs> yeah. You know, there's been like how many cuts of that? Oh yeah, I got and, I got
0: stiffed out on that one with uh buying like the ultimate box set of like twenty five. Oh pounds. yeah, all five versions. So come on,
1: yeah. I have like a little, um, well, it's not a little, it's like a full reproduction of the briefcase from Blade Runner that had all the different versions as well. (laughs) And, you know, and the same with like, uh, for instance, Donnie Darkwood is a really interesting example because Mm -hmm. there was a recent, um, a few years ago, Arrow released a beautiful box set that had a whole bunch of stuff in it, but it had the, the restored director's cut and the theatrical cut. And it's probably one of the very few examples where the theatrical cut is arguably better than the director's cut, but it's, I, I quite like like watching them side by side, almost like seeing what the difference is. And especially if you're a fan of a film or film feels very intensely personal or kind of, you know, like unique at a particular point in time, like Blade Runner or Donnie Darko where, um, Seeing uh, the director play around with that same film, maybe years after they were done with it, just kind of reinvents it. I'm into it. I will watch every single version of a film that I love.
0: Well, yeah, there's there's obviously that thing that a lot of the time, um, it's not just like the the producers sometimes getting involved can benefit the film. Like obviously, there is like yeah. the argument for. Auteurs, but there are a lot of self-indulgent directors out there who kind of get final mm. cut and it's their movies probably could do with a little bit of trimming like i know that kind of has been leveled at quentin tarantino a lot of the time like there's sometimes some bag to his movies that could mm. like give given given kind of i don't know uh, a producer who well it's i don't know it's weird talking about the the producers he's worked with uh because they are notorious, yeah. Well, it's it's weird in that they are notoriously known for being, like, uh, well, one of them being an absolute piece of shit. But as, as a as as a duo, um, like being very restrictive to other creatives. Yet he seems to be the only one that they kind of give free reign to have these baggy, overlong movies at times. Like, yeah, but I don't, uh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> if if that if that makes sense like so yeah the producers can 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 kind of yeah but and i've i weirdly stumbled upon like uh a thing whilst doing this podcast with the director larry charles and his movie mm-hmm. army of one i'm not sure if you've ever 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 seen that it's um
1: no i haven't seen it
0: it's another nick cage movie it's a true life story of uh, a guy who was convinced that he could track down Osama Bin Laden and uh, did these trips over to Pakistan to track him down. And uh, whilst like doing research for that, I found out that um, Bob Weinstein had taken the film away from Larry Charles and edited mm-hmm. down a very similar situation to um, what Paul Schrader went through for this. Like, mm-hmm. re-scored, the ending was changed, like, kind of... It was a different movie to what he had in mind and like what like weirdly whilst doing that La- larry charles actually reached out to me he's like i'm working on a a director's cut of 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 that movie like um so yeah like Amazing. yeah and it's uh <laughs> like for, for yeah for me like uh larry charles is just i don't know an absolute god uh the, ma- the man wrote on the first five seasons of Seinfeld so there's nothing nothing <laughs> <laughs> nothing more nothing more I want um but before we like dive like really into talking about mm-hmm. Dying of the Light and Dark um yeah I'd, l- I'd love to talk a little bit about um like a couple of points that I always ask everyone which is are you a Nicolas mm-hmm. Cage fan like uh and uh, yeah he's uh obviously the 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 spotlight of this podcast is on him a lot of the time. So, are you are you a fan?
1: Yes, yeah, like (laughs) one hundred percent. Perfect.
0: (laughs) Phew. I I wipe my brow. Um, what like what is it that kind of like you like about like his kind of I don't know like his movies or like him specifically, like? Mm
1: -hmm. Um. Well, there's there's been like, two versions of nick cage i think in the popular consciousness and the thing is that i think he's genuinely genuinely an incredibly talented performer like probably one of the most talented actors of his generation the thing that i always love about him in both kind of his phases which i'll talk about in a minute is the fact that he's very intense Mm-hmm. You know, he's as intense in his most subdued performances, he's as intense in the kind of over the top vampire's kiss ones, you know, the ones that become memes and parodied. He is you know, when you see Nick Cage on screen, he's gonna go full in. He's not gonna phone anything in, he's not just gonna show up. Um, even with the more sort of, you know, B movie esque stuff that he's done quite a lot of in, in the last um in the last decade, there is kind of a manic intensity to his performances, which means that you just want to watch him. You know, he's one of those super charismatic actors who you can just film him for two hours, like doing his shopping or browsing online. And I'd still watch that. I was like, I just want to watch it because everything that you do with your face is so deliberate and intense that it's going to be entertaining. And I think that's an incredible um ability for a performer to have. And kind of the thing that I was talking about before is that I kind of got to know and watch most of the Nick Cage films from sort of his original heyday you know before he became I think regrettably kind of considered a, B, a B-list actor or a B-movie actor and did a whole you know slew of of thrillers and kind of director VOD or director DVD films you know nothing nothing wrong with those but it's not the Nick Cage that I remember who would do these incredibly challenging and raw performances and could also be very funny and very charismatic and incredibly kind of engaging on screen. You know, like the guy from Moonstruck and Wild at Heart yeah. and, you know, bringing out the dead. Like that's and even like the unhinged ones in Vampire Kiss is a really good example. That's the Nick Cage that I remember and I still think of. And every time I see kind of his some of, it, some of his most recent performances and I'm quite intrigued to see him going kind of more into the horror direction yes. fully because Mandy and Color Out of Space, I thought were just, I mean, great films and astounding performances by him, you know, kind of dialing it up to eleven when he needs to and kind of bringing a lot of emotional pathos to it as well. And I'm particularly kind of a little bit bummed about Color Out of Space because I think that's an incredible film. and part of it has sort of been treated a bit like a trashy b-movie which it absolutely is not and i don't think um nick cage is like bringing anything except his like top game to it because he's taking it fully seriously
0: well there's a really interesting that's a really interesting point you make and like with in regards to like the films he's doing now i think like especially the last two three years and moving forward with the stuff he's got like slated coming up like there's a film that's supposed mm-hmm. to be uh out this year called willie's wonderland which uh the director kevin lewis has said nick cage is completely like silent in the movie so like wow. we kind of get him like he's he's been known to send interviews and you mentioning vampires kiss like he mm-hmm. takes a lot of inspiration from like um german expressionistic like acting mm-hmm. and like that is, and like he cites *Vampire's Kiss* as his kind of like magnum opus, as his his mm. favorite movie that he's ever done. So like, yeah, mo- like mo- moving his career forward, and like some of, yeah, some of the other directors he's he's working with in the projects. So there's there's one I always always trip over on this title, but it's like the un the unbearable weight of massive talent, which is kind of Nick yes. Cage playing I've heard Nick about Cage. This. Yes, so like yeah, yeah. But yeah, like going like going back to Mandy, like to me, it's 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 a masterstroke of a film. Like it, it kind of ticks a lot of the boxes that that I really like, and um put mm-hmm. p- pulls a pulls upon pulls upon cinema that that I really I really enjoy. Whether it's know, yeah, what what I think one of the f- mm-hmm. the movies that jumped up massive, m- massively to me for that was the holy mountain for 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 some Mm -hmm. bizarre i think it's that kind of thing of a cult and like the imagery of pyramid like Mm -hmm. uh, pyramids a lot of the time in that um but the point i was trying (laughs) to make is that yeah nick cage is now being directed by people who are fans of that heyday Mm -hmm. that that, that's kind of Mm -hmm. that's kind of the like The view of it uh, I get as like Mm -hmm. um, Panos Kosmotos has said that Mm -hmm. his favorite Nick Cage movie is Vampire's Kiss. And you can see that translated into Mandy, in that, like, he, 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 you could tell he probably said to him, like, I love that movie. And like Cage from like, kind of like, yeah, studying Mm -hmm. him basically. You would have known that he would have, like, not needed much else and just gone, you know what, that's perfect. I know exactly what you want from me and yeah we've got we got something fantastic in that but you talk about the heyday so what was the first nick cage film you remember seeing
1: do you know i i was trying to remember and i'm gonna say it was probably breaking out the dead but I don't think I think I was way too young, and I don't remember much about seeing it. It was just one of those films that just kept popping up on trailers and VHSs mm-hmm. that I was watching. So I eventually watched it, but I don't think I really got it. I was probably like eight or something like that. Um, and bringing out that that is a Scorsese film, and it's one of his lesser known films. Yeah. Uh, and Nick Nick Cage plays a, a sort of an ambulance driver in it, but I think the one film where I rem- truly remember seeing him and thinking, "Oh, this is Nicolas Cage," is probably *Raising Arizona*, which is a which is a Coen Brothers movie yeah, yeah, yeah. and very much kind of a, a comedy. So you know, I remember him as a as a funny man, as a perf- as a, like a really comedic performer, and also as someone who you know was being positioned kind of like as a as a leading Hollywood man, but with a, with an offbeat vibe to him and then you know that's afterwards um I started seeing him in stuff like Moonstruck with Cher which is a romantic comedy yeah, yeah. uh well, a romantic drama more like and you know Vampire Skiss, which is I don't even know what that film is but it is <laughs> amazing and like Rumble Fish where he plays sort of like a like a teenage gang member yeah, yeah, yeah. so kind of very weird like all of those performances have I could not construct, like, a Nick Cage persona from them. Whereas now, you know, when you think, oh, what is Nicolas Cage, the actor? You kind of instantly conjure up, like, at least five or ten movies where you're like, oh, that that's his vibe. That's what he's doing was, But for me, in my head, it's always been like, oh, he can do whatever he wants. Yeah, he's, he's always had this, like...
0: It's, it's obviously been, like, uh, memed and stuff like that. He has this, like, scattergun approach and kind of, like we Will just do what whatever takes his fancy, but like always for the best. And he kind of like a lot of actors of his generation. He seemed to skip that like heartthrob stage of his career. He never really like did I don't know a lot of those like t- teen movies or like yeah he wasn't really never played like roma- like massive romantic leads in movies. He kind of just went into oh. either big like i don't know like chew, chew, chewing on like big stuff like i don't know like per- mm. perfectly when he got to yeah work with uh david lynch with like wild at heart and it's like i don't know that mm. first 10 years of his career it was there's so there's so much interesting stuff like quite early out the gate even if it's like um racing with the moon or birdie or as as you mentioned um mm. Raising Arizona, which yeah, he, he he himself has cited that his inspiration for that character was like uh, cartoons like uh, mm-hmm. Roadrunner and uh Wiley Coyote or like this he insisted on having the Woody Woodpecker tattoo because that is like that was his inspiration and you can kind of see it throughout that throughout that performance and uh mm. It's really interesting that you mentioned uh, "Bring Out the Dead" being a, the first film that you you suspect you saw, because that was actually written by Paul Schrader.
1: I know. So
0: I know that now. Us, yeah, yeah, yeah. It brings <laughs> us like perfectly back to where we are now. So uh, amazing. What? Uh, but before, yeah, before we inevitably talk about uh, "Dying of the Light," uh, what was the f- what was your favourite Nick Cage movie? I, I, I think I might know. Uh, well, I don't know from, but but. But I'm, I'm. I'll wait to be surprised um, if it's not.
1: <laughs> I'm gonna say. I'm gonna say Snake Eyes.
0: Snake Eyes, amazing! Another,
1: unexpected, right?
0: <laughs> well, no. I, I. I've got. I've got a very like soft spot in my in my heart for Snake Eyes, and like it's another movie that never got the. It, yeah, it has a bit of this same thing of, it had an ending planned that never never saw the light of day like
1: yeah and i i'm a big fan of the palma mm-hmm. and i think snake eyes is one of the less appreciated the palmas and the reason i mention it is because it's i think i i think i studied it quite intently in university and i just remember obsessing over all the different perspectives in the film because a lot of it is done in split screen yeah and Nick Cage at this point, and you know this is within the same kind of end of the '90s era where he was making, you know, like in quick succession, he made Con Air, oh, yeah. Face Off, Face Off. By the way, also would be my number two <laughs> in the sense of just like epic, memeable performances, kind of absolutely dialed up to 11, but also just unhinged in a really scary way, and Eight Millimeters as well, which I think is an incredibly rewatchable thriller and he's great in that as well so i'm kind of like torn between all of these and you know so but that's all in the same year you know it's like con air of yeah. snake eyes 8 Millimeters, bringing out the Dead, gone in 60 seconds so like there's a lot of i think that's probably some of his best years kind of in the in the latter part of the 90s early 2000s where he'd already um been kind of in a critically acclaimed film with leaving las vegas and He'd already kind of he was already a star, but he was past that heartthrob moment, which I think he very, very briefly sort of flirted with Mm -hmm. when he first started out because of Moonstruck, because of um, Wild at Heart, because of Valley Girl as well, which is an amazing teen movie. He only made like two teen movies, really, I mean. In Fast Times of Richmond High, he only has like a little cameo and he yeah. isn't even credited as Nicolas Cage. But Valley <laughs> Girl is amazing. Um, and Moonstroke and Raising Arizona are sort of romantic films anyway. But yeah, I much prefer the kind of late 90s, dark, unhinged Cage. Yeah, well, that,
0: like Snake Eyes, like for me, I think the thing that drew me in straight away was just that ridiculously long, 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 like one one shot at the beginning, which is like Mm -hmm. for for like a little film nerd like me is like oh, like Chef's Kiss all over the place. (laughs) That's that's the stuff I love. Like and yeah, that that just I don't know. Depart like there's 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 moments from that, and there's kind of like shots in that that like stick with me like to this day. Like I've I've maybe only seen it Mm -hmm. a handful of times, but like. Obviously, De Palma's kind of like just his like use of I I always call him like the '70s zoom in if you know what I mean like that kind of like harsh <laughs> like De Palma yeah. loves it and there's a, there's a lot of that in uh, Snake Coppola Eyes Coppola loves it as well yeah yeah and there's um and yeah a, 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 well a great cast as well like um a kind of well the, my only drawback with that is like when you get the reveal of Gary Sinise as the bad guy it's like mm-hmm. well of course he's the bad guy he's Gary Sinise like he's like got that like sinister like tone to every performance he does anyway
1: yeah he does i mean <laughs> the th- i just because i've watched this film i think after it already seen Forest Gump and CSI with Gary Sinise I just always associated him with like a, a positive present <laughs> as opposed to a negative one which is <laughs> not kind of you know if I'd watched Snake Eyes first I'd probably then really suspect Lieutenant Dan but it was the other way around <laughs>
0: well
1: perfect uh
0: so talking about yeah in which order you watched films when it came to Dying of the Light and Dark in which order did you watch them?
1: Okay, so for this, I watched *Dine of the Light* first, and then I watched *Dark*.
0: Yeah, it seemed like that—that ju- that was like something I like toyed with. I was like, but then it was for me like like a roast dinner. It's like, do I do I eat the vegetables <laughs> first, and then mm-hmm. then then work my way to the roast potatoes, or do I go in for the roast potatoes first? And um, it had to, it had to be the way they were released, um, so. Yeah, what were your what were your initial thoughts on well on on dying of the light first? Like what what did you think of it as, as a movie? And I guess did you were you like was it in the back of your mind throughout watching it that that this isn't what the director had intended?
1: Hmm. So to be perfectly honest, can I swear? Mm-hmm oh so fucking boring (laughs) like like I barely could it could barely keep my attention I was like and I watched it in the morning as well Mm -hmm. it's like cup of coffee perfect time for watching a you know a, a spy thriller oh my god it's so dull um I did not enjoy it and I have to admit I could not you know separate the backstory which I had already read quite a lot about for this episode from this movie and I was sort of like getting annoyed on Schrader's behalf I was just (laughs) constantly like how could you do him this dirty like this is not this how dare you like the man wrote taxi driver how dare you you know so it's this um I I did but when I tried Kind of to separate that boxer and just watch it. It's like you know what, I I love a trashy film, I've got no qualms about it, and I couldn't really enjoy it even as no. um, lowbrow entertainment. Like I just found it very boring, and kind of very poorly edited, and it kind of made no sense.
0: Well, it's 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 very bizarre in that I got to like about an hour in. I think it's, like, it gets to the point where he confronts uh, Baneer, the guy he's, like, tracking down. Yeah. And he leaves his, like, he leaves his apartment. And I thought, like, oh, this might, like, this this feels like it's the end. And I I didn't realise it was, like, an hour in. Then then I looked, yeah, like, and I was like, what? There's half hour left. I was like, (laughs) what is, like, this feels like it's been going on for, for two hours already like it's Mm.
1: i don't
0: like i don't know if it's like a a story like because obviously the idea like of a man like with dementia trying to track down his nemesis before he forgets or his like nemesis dies is is isn't in like do you mean as a kind of Mm elevated pitch for a movie you can kind of see like and and with Paul Schrader's work as well, like that kind of like yeah, his stuff of kind of looking at like a lot of his stuff is very like male centric, isn't it? Like kind of diving into what it is to be to to be like a man, whether it is like taxi driver, yeah. just that kind of like very inward looking about himself mm. or um but he also
1: writes a lot about like very intense like abstract themes you know he's like he's like a thinking director he's a thinking filmmaker you know and you know first performed is so much about faith and and this in that elevator pitch that you perfectly describe as this idea of like well what do you do in the face of mortality like Mm -hmm. what is the dying man's last sort of project Or, you know, what happens with a man whose entire career and identity is tied into his mind and his memories to lose that? Like, that's a that's a great movie on paper. And with someone like Schrader, who is, you know, has made some extraordinary films and knows how to tackle kind of like big, profound themes. It's like you that that's an interesting film in and of itself, kind of the thriller aspect of it is sort of just a backdrop for me. Cause i can i can see kind of what the premise is there to explore but dying of the light as it is is not like you cannot get any of that from that film like if i had just completely gone in blind and not read about the schrader situation before going into it i i probably would have fallen asleep in the first 20 minutes to be honest
0: well i think even if you like, if i didn't know it was directed by paul schrader i would have like it, it it, felt very like televisual to me like kind of like like you saying like the editing the way it's lit like it all just yeah, kind yeah. of and it does have a, like a perfect runtime of a tv show if you do lop off that that third <laughs> that third act that kind of like doesn't doesn't really like complement anything that's gone before it and like from listening to stuff that paul schrader said like Makes total sense because like he had a very specific remit to make this movie. Mm-hmm. Like Lionsgate had said to him, it needs to be between ninety to a hundred minutes long. We need to have X amount of a- a- like action scenes, and it's like, oh, like you can see that on screen. It's like, like the shootout scene at, at the s- like the swimming pool was just like. W- w- what is this? Like, it, it it felt very much like, I don't know, lackluster. And Paul Schrader had filmed it just to be like, well, this is what Lionsgate wanted. So it's like, it's going to have to be in there.
1: Was it Lionsgate, though, or was it the production company?
0: Well, Lionsgate, like, were the production company and then throughout it sold it off. Like once the film was shot, sold it off to Grindstone, uh, yeah, Grindstone, who are a like sub faction of Lionsgate, who are like their VOD branch. So I think Paul Schrader said when it got to that point, he knew that this movie was like they 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 knew what they wanted for it like I mean? they had no no faith in it to have like a theatrical release they kind of and he 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 surmises that was their plan all along was to just wheel it out and financially it would be more beneficial for it to just have a vod launch which i guess is quite a, a, a sad state of like filmmaking really right
1: yeah, because I read that it was uh, Red Granite Productions or Red Granite International oh. who were the producers, and then they sold it to. Uh, oh God, what's what's the name of the VOD? Yeah, Grindstone Entertainment. Yeah, and, I, um, I, I, yeah I'm only Lionsgate going. It's 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 such a confusing thing, anyway.
0: Yeah, I was only going off of like the yeah, uh, as I said, I think I said off mic that. I watched the Paul Schrader like uh master class. Uh and yeah, he he, mm-hmm. he 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 had very bad words to say about he kept he kept mentioning Lionsgate. That's the only reason I bring it up. He kept like kind of like uh talking about how much how much of our arseholes they were. But it was obviously his his words, not mine. Like I think I've, like, <laughs> I've released some some fantastic films. So uh, please, please don't come after me, Lionsgate. Uh, um But, like, in regards to performances in this, Mm -hmm. what did did you think, um, before we get into Nick Cage's, what did you think of uh, Anton Yelkin's performance in this movie?
1: Well, I love Anton Yelkin, R.I.P. He was an amazing young actor. And I, I just, from dying of the light, I just, I don't really... Get what's <laughs> happening there. Like there, the dynamic between his and Cage's uh, characters is a little bit like uh, sort of mentor mentee, but also are they supposed to be partners? And he's sort of kind of like a reluctant dragging him along, but also helping him out. So he's sort of trying to be a little bit slimy. Yes. but then he isn't so it's kind of but he doesn't really have that persona you know he's got a very earnest like an earnestness around him and i don't think it really fits in that well into this idea of kind of a, a an agent who might you know double cross him or or dump him at any point but it sort of has that element to him in the way that the film is ultimately put together but then in dark it that's not the vibe that I got from him at all. And Dark, he is much more as a kind of, you know, looking up and trying to protect yeah. uh, from kind of the, the CAA and kind of the, that ecosystem, protecting Cage's character because he wants to kind of help him on his last mission to the point. Like, you really feel the sort of the looking up element to his character so much more in Dark than you do in Diane of the Line. Diane of the Line, I kept thinking that he was up to something sleazy and and then he wasn't really. So it was just kind of a, a bit muddled for me. Well, I,
0: I kept thinking, like, I guess it's like, you know you're not enjoying a film when, like, just something just niggles at you and you just can't you can't help but think of that. It's like, how has how's he got all this time off of, like, he's just left his job, like, do you know what I mean? He keeps talking about the fact that, like, oh, like I could lose my job for this. But it's like, oh, so you're, you're just going to jet off to... Romania and then you're gonna like jet off to Mombasa like sure and like obviously the CIA had already found out from uh, about Cage's character that he had like been to see a doctor about his dementia and it's like surely they're the CIA they're gonna know that you're like jetting off to all these places even if you do use these aliases and like that was kind of like once, once that like got into my head, I was like, "Well, I wasn't enjoying the movie anyway." But like, when it came to dying of the light, but well, yeah, when it got to that, I was just like, "Oh, this is a this is a big is a big plot hole,
1: surely." <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's plot hole. I mean, I think this film kind of takes the idea of plot holes to a whole other level. Yes. Yeah,
0: like, well. Is there any elements of dying dying of the light specifically that you enjoyed before we before we dive into talking about what Schrader managed to salvage of it?
1: Ironically or unironically?
0: Oh, <laughs> <laughs> bit of column A, bit of column B, is always
1: uh, Do you know what? I enjoyed the, the there's a couple of moments which I thought were kind of really sad. Um, so there's a moment where, you know, Nick Cage's character is kind of suffering from dementia. The, the whole point is that he's sort of slowly losing his grasp grasp on his memories and in his reality, and he doesn't notice. And he, you know, gets really angry whenever anybody tries to help him or point him point that out to him. And there's a the moment where he goes to this restaurant, uh, and he's telling someone i think it's anton anton yelchin's character on the phone that he's like oh i'm a diamond tuesdays <laughs> and he says that instead of ruby tuesdays and that's kind of a very simple very you know almost a, a throwaway moment but it's one of the few where kind of everybody was in at the same pitch and he kind of says it as this throwaway thing but it's such a, a famous i think restaurant chain that yeah you instantly know that there's something wrong and he doesn't notice and everybody around him notices. And then he gets like really uppity and really angry about it. And I thought that was kind of a, a nice moment that they kept in. And that's the film that kind of a nugget of the film that I thought maybe Schrader wanted to make that was in there. Um, and then, you know, there's so, there's so many scenes where I was like, I think this is not the take that they would have that Trader would have gone for, but I can see what they're doing here. They're just trying to cram in as many you know Nick Cage going loud moments as possible um and you know there's that line where he is arguing with uh with senior management at the CIA you know making up titles here, and he's like you've got so you've got your hair so far up Obama's ass you can't say anything but his shit anymore, and he's like, shame <laughs> on you.' just like this gratuitous yelling i just found like what are you saying what are you doing why are you just having a meltdown in the middle of this office where you're trying to get something from this person so you know and then a whole bunch of freaking out scenes where at one point when he's being escorted out um i think someone he's again having a meltdown and somebody tells him it's like there's no need to get snippy sir <laughs> just like <laughs> i'm sorry paul schrader would never write the word snippy <laughs> into a script well, uh, like? but uh, <laughs> that,
0: that's really interesting to talk about that because in this masterclass i watched uh that was the scene that um there's like a clip of the original and the cut, the the mm-hmm. the one from Cut of of that scene of him talking to upper management at the CIA, yeah, and how they're played completely differently, and like, mm. and just the how the dementia's played in Dark is like, like far more interesting, and we kind of like it's not, I don't, not that Dying of the Light is played. I don't. It's kind of cheapened by the fact that they're pl- It seems like it's played more for the, the yeah the the cageisms for the the big cage moments. Mm. Whereas like, in dark, it seems like it like through visual like yeah through visuals it kind mm. of like it makes it a bit more distressing and like like gives gives obviously like something that is a very serious topic of dementia like gives it more gravity than this kind of like. I don't know. In dying of the light, it it kind of makes it seem like th- that is just like his. I don't know his angle. Do you know what I mean? Like uh, I don't know. Like uh, John McLean's is like uh, I'm, 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 I've got a like a relationship in the balance, and like yeah, Evan Lake says, oh, I've I've got dementia, it's just a character quirk, whereas like yeah, Dark seems like it's more of like this like. It's a man who is suffering and like the audience are more privy to that than like I don't know, yeah, dying of the lights a bit a bit more just plays it a bit cheaper really. Like and you don't you don't really get any sense of like the the how 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 horrible it is to 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 be to yeah, to, to be in his position. So yeah, let let's probably dive into dark and then we can kind of like talk about like how they how they differ really mm. um what what moments from dark did you like well yeah what did you think of that as a as a whole movie
1: um i mean i just found it it's weird because i watched them basically back to back and from the m- first moment that dark started i could tell that there was an entirely different movie Yes, like it's it's a so the way that it was made is quite interesting because it's essentially kind of a found footage movie, yeah, to a degree, because Schrader used kind of the the footage from the from the DVD work prints. And in some bits of the film, there's sort of obviously him sort of recording the screen yeah. or using kind of other sources. So there's a really kind of experimental vibe to it. And I kind of already was into it, but it really is about mortality and illness rather than a cia plot so kind of the the whole kind of cia uh an ex-spy chasing down his nemesis becomes the the quirk as opposed to the real plot of the film and the real meaning of the film and i thought just kind of you know, you mentioned that one scene and there's a couple of them that are played so differently just because of the tone and the editing and kind of the um, the rhythm that it's given to the film. And, you know, I it kind of really made me miss this film that's never going to exist. You know, this version of Dying of the Light that Schrader had in his head that would have been very almost minim- a minimalistic spy thriller because mm-hmm. he's so much more concerned in dark with the scenes that are not action driven but that are character driven you know like the scenes of him having their argument with the upper management staff of him sort of trying to prove um to anton yelton's character that he's doing fine when he tries to balance um a a dictionary on top of his hand to prove that you know he's still a man of action and he says the same line you know he says the same kind of very um you know, much alpha macho line of like, you know, there's only two types of people in the world, you know, men of action and everyone else. And he sort of does this thing with the dictionary. But it plays so differently in both versions. And in Dark, it's very much kind of this desperate appeal to someone younger that he still has what it takes. And that's the whole film. You know, Dark is a much more kind of depressing character driven drama than. A spy thriller with some entirely forgettable kind of car chases mm-hmm. and scenes like that, and even kind of the more over-the-top elements of the of the film. I think notably the part where towards the end, when he confronts his nemesis and he has to kind of you know dress himself up in in costume and he has to put on a German accent and he's sort of pretending to be veneer's uh, doctor who travels to visit him because he's also dying. Even that sort of isn't as over the top Mm -hmm. it kind of doesn't fit in as well because there's elements kind of there of you know the um, mission impossible let's put a a plastic mask over your face and suddenly everybody believes that you're an entirely different person though you're clearly still just Nicolas Cage but you're just wearing a bit of you know a mustache but It just had a completely somber tone, you know, and even that scene, it was not played as, you know, this big dun-dun-dun meeting Mm -hmm. between two nemeses. It's two dying men who kind of can't really do much damage to one another anymore, but they just have to finish off the business that they have together.
0: Well, yeah, and I think think it it speaks a lot to the futility of, like, revenge as well, and just this kind of, like, Especially like, um, I don't know, like America as like a country, uh, tend to have this thing of like, do you know what I mean? Like looking, looking, old, and like in that in that talk to upper management where he talks about how you like, like Evan Lake, his character says like you fucked up all these things and kind of like goes through like all the kind of big events that uh, America have been involved in, whether it's 9/11 or the 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 hunt for saddam hussein and it is just like and yeah and how how kind of like the second gulf war like the second the this the second gulf war was almost like america's revenge mission for the first gulf war it kind of like plays a lot more into to that and like the thing of like what is what what is what is the point of like Seeking, like seeking, and just kind of like the futility of it all. Just like he—he's dying. His enemy's dying. Like that none of them are going to come out as the victor in this, and neither of them do. Mm-hmm. And it's yeah, like thank you. it's 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 quite like yeah, dark. Is and I love I, I I love. There's a specific moment for me that like i would and it it saddens me it's a a thing i've like found out a lot from like yeah from speaking to writers and directors it's like the saddest thing for me is just there's so many scripts that like even if they are made they're not the film that was written or films even when they're directed they're not the films that 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 were that were filmed and um yeah, there's a moment in this, and it's—I I find it beautiful. There's like a scene where it's—it's it's, it's really insignificant as well. It's just him driving to to veneers at the end, and like it's just this this wash of colours as he's kind of like driving through Mombasa, and like the score like is is beautiful, and just mm-hmm. this kind of like this ta- like ta- yeah, like this tableau. It all feels slow motion, and a little bit woozy and it's like it really brings you down and like obviously it's hard to shake off like you I watched these two films kind of back to back and it's like i don't know like it was like trying to trying to drink something enjoyable or like yeah trying to drink an orange juice after you've brushed your teeth like uh, something i don't recommend it's just like i just had this like foul taste in my mouth that was dying of the light and obviously like i had this just feeling of you can see moments in this and like even the way that there's a there's a dinner scene um where it's yeah um nicholas cage's character anton yelchin and irene jacob's character they're, they're played like so differently and like I didn't notice in the Dying of the Light because I don't think it was there. There's this like kind of smooth jazz playing in the background and this like wash of like dark, like blue, and you can see the band. Which again, like I'm not sure if I'd kind of it had lost me in Dying of the Light, but when it came to dark, like Mm. I was like, it almost reminded me of like I don't know, it like felt quite David Lynch to me in like that kind of like maybe it's because he's known for. For using a lot of uh jazz sax uh for his career in, on his soundtracks but it like it's like oh this this is great like this this is really like and yeah it it plays to the sadness of the character a lot more and i didn't know like dying of the light like i couldn't help but laugh when i saw um nick cage in in the hat as a uh, you know like the kind of I guess it's like a, a Russian-style hat he's wearing, but in dark, mm-hmm. that that scene with him and Anton Yelchin on on the park bench is heartbreaking. Like mm-hmm. it's re- it's like it is a real moment of sadness where he's kind of like he's a man who is. You can see then that he's he's lo- he's he's lo- like losing his memory, like day by day. Yeah, yeah.
1: I totally agree it's like it is a real moment of sadness, and it's it's weird because it kind of i mean I so recommend watching these two films for kind of film students just mm-hmm. to see even as incomplete as Stark is, you can still see part of the point that Schrader was trying to make like par- at least a partial approach to his vision and it's interesting to see these back-to-back scenes because you can see where it, how it manifests, you know, these very small choices. The footage is the same. It's just the way that he, you know, directs our attention and sets the tone in those kind of, in all of the film, but kind of in those pivotal moments that we can almost compare back-to-back back between Dying of the Light and Dark. And it changes the, it changes the film entirely. Like I, I felt like even though I was watching the same footage, I was watching an entirely mm-hmm. different film, tonally speaking.
0: Yeah, and it's I don't like the, the the use of yeah the the use of color in dark is 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 great, and it like it it seems to be that the color palette is pulling very much upon like because that opening shot we get is of the brain scan, mm-hmm. and we get um, yes. Ethan Hawke's voiceover, which like yeah like this film was edited back to back with well dark was edited back to back with first reform and like mm-hmm. kind of schrader had that idea so like had uh had probably said to ethan Hawke, who, who I, lo- I love hearing ethan Hawke's voice it always makes me feel really really assured and like those <laughs> moments as well like um i th- yeah i think that probably like draws back to boyhood i guess uh uh but that's that that's a that's an entirely different podcast in itself. Uh, <laughs> uh, um, but yeah, those moments like I wanted I wanted like more of that because again, it just felt it just felt odd and a bit like it felt out of place, but but totally in place at the same time. Like if that yeah, if and I don't know ev like Evan Lake in Dark, like he seems I do not not sinister not i don't know like yeah he's he seems he seems more well-rounded than he does in dying of the light like the character nick cage plays and it's i don't know it's just such a such a a real shame and there's did did, did you pick up that uh dark has like an an added scene well like a, a, a bit of footage that isn't in dying of the light which bit the the or maybe maybe I tuned out in dying of the light. the the the, the I, I the the scene in the care home I, I I don't remember seeing that in dying of the light or or did I zone out?
1: Oh, I don't remember seeing it either in dying of the light. Yeah, there's a moment maybe that maybe I tuned out at that point as well. Yeah, I think it's
0: only in dark. There's that scene after he gets his diagnosis where he goes to see an old friend in like a care home who like you could I I assume like isn't speaking but must have like later Mm -hmm. stages of dementia and then it it kind of brings context to that scene when he's in Ruby Tuesdays even more because it's like he's not just been diagnosed with it himself he's like it's kind of given him the like impetus to to see to see an old friend or colleague or mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and and kind of like he's stared into the face of like what he is going to become, like whether like and obviously like something that he he doesn't want because he's got this he's got this mission ahead of him. And like, yeah, just the editing style as well. There's that there's a moment just before that where he's like walking down a corridor. And yeah. like, there's like overlapping like footage, and I I think near mm-hmm. the end it like, it like starts playing backwards, and yeah, like the the editing the editing style, like you, you mentioning that thing of filming the the the, the like monitor is mm-hmm. exactly what the editor on Dark did, and there's like there's mm-hmm. video footage of him doing it, and. Mm-hmm. Schrader says it was all done on feeling, and I think that's what, like, that's what makes Dark a lot more interesting. Is it? It has it has feeling, it has emotion to it, whereas Dying of the Light is very like aus- austere and like clinical and quite, I don't know, quite. Yeah, Dying,
1: dying of the Light feels like it's been. You know, delivered mm-hmm. for something like there's like you mentioned before. You know, there's beats that it needed to hit. You know, we need an explosion here. We need a a, a Nick Cage yelling moment here. We need you know uh, a woman here. And dark is much more like a mood piece. And the editing is very weird. But you know, the thing that you mentioned about the colors, I found very interesting because I noticed that as well. Like there were shots where. I was like oh this is this is quite a simple but a very beautiful shot where you're kind of getting this the mood of a of a scene or an environment much more than like kind of getting any narratively by, valuable information Of like oh okay so where are they going now who are they chasing now mm-hmm. who are they shooting at or being shot at now you know it's much more it's like where are they as characters as opposed to what are they going to do and it's almost weird to describing in that sense because you're right. It's kind of, it is kind of more of a feeling. Like you feel instantly that it's a different film entirely and it's trying to achieve entirely different things. Well,
0: yeah, you mentioned about the colours. There's a really interesting article that I'd recommend anyone listening to check out as well. And I'll put it in the show notes of this episode. Um, Paul Schrader's cinema photographer, uh, Gabriel uh, Kosher, uh, did did an article for variety where he talks about like the initial intentions for this movie and that schrader Mm. wanted to use color in a way to 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 make to make you feel something because schrader himself has said and like i guess we see a lot in his earlier films he's somebody who's and his background in obviously being a, a critic and stuff like that and just the generation he came from it was all about story for him whereas like he kind of realized after like he had kind of had this bad experience with dying of the light that you don't have to it doesn't all have to be story 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 like you can say so much with visuals and i think that's what Mm -hmm. dark is a um an exercise in is like showing us and We yeah weirdly like because this came out in two thousand and seventeen I think yeah uh, like Dark Dark, and Dark did yeah yeah yeah, and like again like uh like maybe the set this the the same year we got uh like David Lynch's like Twin Peaks the Return which like Mm has got that famous kind of central episode uh episode eight as like yeah. like most people who have seen it will will know just plays with that total like visual 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 filmmaking and like kind of like when i watched dark like that ending i was kind of transported back to that twin peaks episode because it just goes into this thing of just like i don't know like film collage and just light and colors and you're just kind of a bit like you, the film disin, like disintegrates basically. What 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 did you what did you think mm-hmm. of the way that Dark ended? Um
1: I think you put it really nicely there, like it disintegrates, which it I mean it has a distinctly kind of experimental mm-hmm. film vibe to it, kind of a very tactile vibe. Like it's it's all digital, obviously, and even the stuff that is kind of shot. The screens that are being shot by another camera. But it really reminded me kind of 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 experimental filmmakers, American ones, especially from the 70s or even 60s, who were playing around with film itself Mm -hmm. or, you know, are writing things on pieces of celluloid, filming that, who are just kind of burning or crisping film and seeing how that looks, how that feels, the noises that it makes. And it's kind of esoteric and indescribable in that sense and maybe a little bit lofty but considering kind of the the plot the the vague traces of the plot that we're facing having that very tactile almost experimental approach to the film I found really much more interesting to watch than Dying of the Light and with the ending it kind of it felt really sad to be honest like Mm -hmm. it felt very much like oh, this was his last, not his last hurrah, this was his last thing that he needed to prove to himself. And it was kind of this race against his own mind and his own body. And he's done now. So in a way, it kind of it feels quite like like a victory to a degree. Yeah. yeah.
0: And it, well, it's that thing that, like, I I could have really done without the the shot of his uh grave at the end. I just like I I, I get maybe because I just like ambiguity a lot in in films mm. like media and stuff like that. But like it it has that thing, and I've, yeah, Paul Schrader has said that he wanted the film to kind of like get get like I don't know, kind of spiral out as as like to. Encapsulate Evans' like mind disintegrating, and that's kind of where this like idea of the ending, I imagine, came from. And like, Mm -hmm. it really, yeah, it's just like, I don't like, yeah, that, yeah. My my only thing is like, I'm glad we didn't get that. Like, like the stuff that is missing from this that is in the original is great like because we d- i don't think we needed to see whether he killed bernier i don't i don't think we needed to see like if if he died like
1: mm-hmm.
0: we we all know like the film is set up that that is their inevitability anyway do you know what I mean like mm-hmm. he gets his diagnosis mm-hmm. in the first act like but but like but yeah like the whole film is set up that these two are eventually they have they're they're, they're that is that is kind of like the the hitchcockian like bomb under the table is these two characters and it's like i don't know i guess it's maybe maybe i'm kind of like it's the the kind of grief porn side of me or like just kind of like or like make it as dark as you can it's like just like i would have, i would have liked that ambiguous ending where it's like oh i know they're going to die anyway and like there's no there's no there's no resolve to it and it's like i think dark plays a lot more into into that it's just yeah that that final shot of the grave, mm-hmm. like kind of I don't know undercuts it ever so slightly,
1: I mean with dark, we're kind of just you know we're with a dying man, mm-hmm. and we kind of know that from the beginning as opposed to being driven by oh is he gonna catch the yeah is he gonna catch his nemesis or not? it's like no, it's like is he is we know he's gonna die. And when he meets, when he finally confronts Bernier, he we also know that he's also dying, which then kind of just becomes a not even a a race. It's just futile and kind of a bit depressing. Mm
0: -hmm. Yeah, and, and the the fact that the the end is it's not a confrontation of. Um, like physical actions, it's it's a confrontation of of words, and even even that just it just all disintegrates. Like whereas in Dying of the Light, it's a lot more like a lot more. It's kind of like it's intercut a lot with this, with like just Evan's mind going and going and going, and then kind of reverting back throughout his life, and kind of ending with that speech that he gives at the beginning, and like do just just really plays into yeah, like, good. Now, yeah, now 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 I'm thinking about it, it's really, it's quite it's quite it's, bu- it's bumming me out quite a lot. Like yeah, me, yeah, like I've 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 got I've got a, I've got a big bout of eg- existential dread now. <laughs>
1: <laughs> I mean that's the Schrader special, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. Oh god, thanks, Paul. Uh,
0: yeah. So, yeah. <laughs> um, what did you think of Nick Nick Cage's p- performance throughout? Well, these films or i guess more, more so dark
1: well there's a when i was reading about it there was an interesting thing that i read that he said so schrader reached out to his cast of the film when the whole stuff was going down with the producers of the film and you know the film was taken away from him and he kind of wrote like this interesting thing he was very vocal about it yeah. uh, even though even at the time as much as they could because obviously talent have to sign there's always a clause in their contracts where they cannot you know criticize or disparage a film when they need to be promoting it yes uh you know they cannot sort of you know blast it publicly when it's being sold to audiences and kind of on its release and but he did release kind of this thing that Cage wrote to him back. I think he mentioned that it was in an email where, and this is kind of me quoting Nicolas Cage, where he says, I'm an A-list actor doing A-list work who's been forced into B-list presentations simply because I had some hits in action films a million years ago. Oh. And I just thought it was beautiful because it's like, you know what people are trying to sell you as. And when you sign up for a Paul Schrader movie, to work with Paul Schrader, whose work you know, and they did eventually work together again on Doggy Dog, but it's, it's this kind of disappointment of I set up to do something good with a talented filmmaker, and now it's being made something vacuous and empty and very basic. Based on this preconception that my name in an action film can sell, you know, can make some money in overseas territories or whatever. And you can tell that I think in the way that he's presented in Dying of the Light kind of feeds into this idea of him as a B-movie actor. But Dark, even with with what we get of this, the leftovers of the vision of Schrader in dark you can see that there's something a little a little a little more thoughtful going on. You know, like he is actually playing the role of someone who is slowly losing control of themselves as opposed to a man who will just explode in tirades and throw shit around and throw hissy fits just because yeah. just because that's what you expect of a of a Nick Cage B movie.
0: Well, I always like to look at like, yeah, you saying about like him. I don't like, yeah, Paul Schrader has said that like Cage wasn't like too fussed when he came to like them being screwed because I think by this point of his career had become adjust like adjusted to that thing of like a lot of the movies he had made had had been screwed by producers and like um, he had been I don't yeah well. I think I think he kind of had like one of his biggest like letdowns in, in the nineties, where he kind of got like weeks before filming uh, Superman Lives, and then like the whole production fell through. So I guess he is a guy who totally understands the the fickle nature of the film industry and that kind of battle with 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 producers and. Um, but I always like to look at the films in kind of context in both both director and actor's career and like mm-hmm. um this like dying of the light came out in two thousand and fourteen which like before this cage had made a very interesting choice to be in left behind which uh I'm not sure if you have seen or uh I'd like if you haven't I, I would I would never recommend it to anyone. <laughs>
1: <laughs> um, that is a great recommendation in and of itself
0: yeah it's well that that film oh
1: i know this film
0: (laughs) yes yeah 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 Yeah, Yeah. (laughs) it's well it's 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 an odd one in that um it it is is based on like uh a very very christian book with like christian messages and cage's performance in that he just almost seems like scared to act en- anywhere just in case he offends anyone cuz he's openly admitted he did the film because uh, one of his brothers is a pastor so like uh did did it. it's like oh yeah no, my brother really likes the books so i'll do this do this movie but uh like yeah i just find it interesting that like uh, there's that and then the the film before that was outcast um again a very interesting film with uh Hay- Hayden Christensen uh mm-hmm. and Nick Cage uh basically playing Lo Pan from um Big Trouble in Little China which is a very <laughs> uh, again a very interesting choice but like this is only a year after like we I would put up there as like one of my favorite like not necessarily Nick Cage films, but my favourite Nick Cage performances, which is Joe, which I think like to anyone who's never seen that, like, yeah, mm-hmm. listening, it's like it's it's a be- it's a beautiful film and like Nick Cage in it really shows you that he does like he may have this kind of view that people have on of him, but like his performance in Joe really shows us why he got that oscar for leaving las vegas and why why he is still like the great actor that 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 i don't know a lot of people have, have known that he has been throughout his 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 whole career and like you can you can really see like with dying of the light well yeah with the kind of the dying of the dark project like mm-hmm. that he 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 get he he gives it, and like I don't know, he's he's a oh, it's, it's, it it ups it always upsets me slightly that like yeah we we never get to see these films in like the manner in which like they they were intended, and like I don't know, yeah to to look, even to look at Paul Schrader's career on this time, I think this is just after like he had done the Canyons with Brett and yeah. Alice yeah. Which again is a very like a really in like poor Sch- for a man who's like now in his seventies like hasn't really like slowed down in the way of just like push like pushing his own creativity and the things he does, which like is can
1: only commend him for, yeah, and it's you know it's it's kind of in the context of Schrader's career just a few years before he made um, The Dying of the Light, or actually seven years, but it's one of the films from kind of his, this era of his filmmaking before kind of making The Canyons was notable in the sense that it got quite a lot of publicity because Mm -hmm. it was shot as a very low budget, because it was Lindsay Lohan's sort of comeback, and then it wasn't, and because he used real-life porn performers as well in the film, and then First Form kind of was, I think, his big comeback to massive critical acclaim. Yes. But there was a film that isn't as well known that he directed in, in 2007 with Woody Harrelson, who's another kind of actor who is consistently excellent, and also a little bit typecast as a character actor. But I think he's he's kind of got that Cage esque appeal, that, and it's that's... called The Walker. And it's Woody Harrelson and Chris Kristen called Thomas and Lauren Bacall, the whole kind of other roster of um amazing kind of actors.
0: Yeah, wow, and yeah. It's I'm... a
1: very it's a very subtle film. It's kind of like one of those great character-driven American dramas that, you know, Schrader kind of pioneered in his own right from the 70s. Yeah, it's
0: like it's I don't know, like it's a i was just looking at the walker and uh looks looks amazing <laughs> like just just from looking from the the imdb page just looking at some some of the cast like yeah like mm-hmm. willem will willem defoe another another one that again again i think is in in that nick, nick cage kind of school of i'll do i'll do anything but i'll i'll also be really great and give it my all like Um, yeah yeah like so before yeah before we wrap wrap things up there's three questions i always ask at like the end of like these episodes which Mm um i'm kind of trying to build up some data like I, i keep saying this i don't i don't know what it's going to tell me but i guess that's why we get the data first and then figure out at the end what what it all means but like as a kind of rating system is in this movie does nick cage have bad hair that's that's always my first question on these yes
1: yes he 100 (laughs) does have a terrible white wig on
0: yeah and he he loves to um it's it's really funny in any movie i've seen him in when he has had uh like gray hair he's like he makes a big point of like i think it's like whilst doing an interview for army of one he like really made a point that he dyed his beard gray it's like okay nick we get it you're not going you're not going gray quite yet like like it seems very precious <laughs> over the the fact that he's like he's not going gray and um my my set my second question is does he do anything crazy with his voice obviously you mentioned earlier vampires kiss and i think one for mm-hmm. me is peggy sue got married like cage is known um, to pull out these voices out of the bag, uh, do, do we get any of that from Cage in this movie?
1: Um, I would say probably the biggest moment is when he does the German accent when he's pretending to be the the German doctor. Mm-hmm. That's uh, that's kind of comes out of nowhere, and you're like, oh, hello, <laughs> you're a CIA <laughs> agent with uh, acting skills and accent work behind him. Oh, great!
0: Well that that I, I think it's yeah something like I forgot to mention that like really really made me laugh, I think in both versions is Baneer's reaction like to him like kind of there's this dramatic moment of him like demasking like- pu- pulling off his like mustache and like taking off his glasses, but it isn't until he like takes off like the prosthetic on his ear that he recognizes who he is, and it was kind of a bit like really. <laughs> That's what it took for you to, yeah. like, recognise that it was him? Like, it was, it was the sliced ear. Like, it was like that for me was a bit, like, I, I don't know. Like, I felt like even on the writing stages of it, like, Schrader didn't really know what to do at that point of the movie. <laughs> and my final question I was asked with these is, do we get a Nicolas Cage freakout? A man who has, for better or worse, become famous from giving us moments of mania. Um,
1: we get several. <laughs> we get several. I think the probably the most out there one is the one where he is arguing with the with the CAA upper management or the director of the CAA where that character is and and you know he goes on a rant and kind of has that line that i quoted before about um (laughs) having the caa dude just having his head stuck up so far up obama's ass what i which is (laughs) funny that they kept it in dark as well um yeah we we do get several but i think that one is my favorite
0: i really love those um like a couple of like standout quotes, me the way he says like you have values in like the opening speech, uh, just really stuck out to me it's this kind of like I, I don't know Cage can fall into these like Cageisms of speaking it's like, and he the way he said he delivers a line beautifully when he's talking to Anton Yelchin's character Milton about uh, Benir, I think it's when they're at Ruby Tuesday he's like uh he delivers the line it's in his blood but he like delivers it like like he's elvis he like kind of like gets to channel his like love for elvis whilst doing yeah. th- this this this, <laughs> this movie about a man with uh dementia um perfect so yeah i i would normally ask would you recommend people watch this but yeah you you've already said you're definitely definitely do that um before i let you go anna like obviously you have yeah you have a lot of like uh, feathers or uh, strings to your bow uh, uh, i it feathers to the hat strings to the bow uh, <laughs> uh, so yeah obviously um i saw that like yeah i'd love to briefly talk to you about like the the underwire uh, festival you do and like what like what does um, what, what is it like? What is the kind of like not to like make you do an elevator pitch, but obviously I don't want to take up too much of your time.
1: Um. So, in a nutshell, uh, Underwear Festival is the it's the short film festival, and is currently the largest one of its kind in the UK that celebrates female talent working in film. So that's not just directors, but producers, screenwriters, cinematographers, composers. A lot of different roles are recognized in the in the competitive program uh, that go into and that could contribute to making a film. A film, basically. Uh, so that usually happens in September time. However, unfortunately, this year I had to cancel the festival because of the the the, the little inconvenience of a global <laughs> pandemic um but it will be coming back next year and i'll be updating kind of people on how to submit and how to find out more about the festival and what are we going to do while this is all happening and there is no annual festival happening in 2020 but usually it's a 10-day film festival that happens around eight different venues across london and it's it's a really great vibe. I think, you know, I'm a little bit biased because I've been running it for five <laughs> years now, but it's genuinely kind of a vibe of people just going to see great films uh, that happen to be made by women. And we get kind of a very fun audience. There's Q and at every screening and we do kind of a mix of short film programs, mostly, and then kind of curator programs, guest events Uh, Q&A's with filmmakers and film practitioners and kind of more stuff like that is going to happen yeah
0: amazing uh it brings me on to yeah the final girls which I must say like I've the last 24 hours been just like binging on your first season all about uh, (laughs) which is like on the podcast but obviously it's not just a podcast, is it? The Final Girls. It start. It, uh, how did it, yeah, it started as a, a website. Am I m- not mistaken? Is it? What, what well, is the kind it, of impetus of that?
1: So my friend Olivia and I started it about four years ago, um, and it's it was initially a screening series. So we started doing screenings before we had a website, and we started putting on screenings in London that were essentially re positioning horror films and kind of horror films that were a little bit too weird for the art house scene and not horror enough for the horror scene and we were particularly focused on kind of female filmmakers and uh, themes and anxieties that were particular to women and kind of also creating just a space where Uh, women and everyone really would feel welcome and be able to enjoy really weird, disturbing cinema and horror films without having to answer the question of like, "Mm, are you here for yourself? Or are you here because your boyfriend made you come to this thing? So it's kind of, you know, everybody who comes to our screenings loves weird films and horror films. And that's kind of the vibe that we try to create. And since then, it's evolved from, a screening series to you know, we curate and distribute a, a touring program of short films made by of horror shorts uh, across the UK every year, but also internationally a little bit. We've just launched a horror film journal that commissions and pays for writers to write about uh, horror past, present, and future. And we also do the podcast, which launched at the end of last year, and the first season was all about witches and I'm so sorry you had to endure 24 hours of me talking about witches no 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 uh, genuinely it was, then it was we're an launching, pleasure <laughs> <laughs> and we're launching the second series we just announced it this week actually we're launching the, the second series which is all going to be focused on female monsters so that's kind of everything from like the Panther women to the Bride of Frankenstein to female vampires and zombies and um, weird mutated creatures and everything that is sort of gendered as female. And that's going to be kind of a really interesting, really meaty season. I'm really looking forward to um, having all the guests on board to talk about those films. It's, there's some really wild ones there that I've been dying to talk to about.
0: Amazing. Yeah, like I'm, I'm as said, it was an absolute pleasure for me to like, to, to listen to the podcast because for one, Gave me a oh, chance to you. like re re like visit in my own mind my experience of Nick Rogue's uh, <laughs> the the Witches which is a film that terrifies me up until this day um, like Same. Uh, to my absolute core like it but possibly like uh, because yeah my, my sister realised quite early on that it scared me and uh, would would put it on just just to scare me uh that's so mean (laughs) (laughs) yeah um but i I think it's i think it's uh shaped the 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 weird film lover that i've I've become today so so maybe i should thank her for that that uh, (laughs) early life torment and um obviously yeah like it's quite clear you like talking about the macabre and like uh the dark the darker things and yeah uh, i think by the time this comes out um you, you'll be quite deep into uh see uh, the second series of final girls but i'll be sure to drop a drop a link in the the description to this where to get it brings me on to the the final bow uh, the final feather no oh, bloody hell the fi- yeah the final feather in your cap which is the next supremes which you host with uh the amazing and future guest because, uh, I'm, I'm zip zapping all over the place like Marty McFly with when I record these episodes, uh, Cl- uh, Clarice Lockery. And, uh, you guys talk about American horror story, which again, uh, I've, I'm, I'm an, I'm an avid listener. <laughs>
1: <laughs> oh, well, thank you. Yeah. That's, um, uh, Clarice and I, uh, very randomly and kind of out of the blue, discovered our shared love for American Horror Story. And I'm a big I'm a big Ryan Murphy fan, and I forgive him everything. <laughs> and I consume his content voraciously. And American Horror Story is just one of those comfort shows for me. And I've rewatched some of the seasons multiple times. Some of them I've only watched once. And with the Next Supremes. Clarice and I are rewatching all the series from the beginning, so we've, we're just about more than halfway through season one, and we're we're looking at every episode and kind of giving in, giving it the the critical attention that it so sorely deserves, and also just having a bit of fun revisiting the whole series, which is now coming up to its tenth season which has sadly been pushed back to 2021 but it's it's been really fun to revisit a show that many people have very strong opinions on but not that many people can kind of kind of devoted some attention to especially with the benefit of hindsight
0: yeah yeah well you definitely give it the critical analysis it needs especially when looking at uh the Naked Men moments of uh, each episode, Uh, (laughs) which uh, I always... Listen, Ryan
1: puts it out there. Yeah, exactly. Um... (laughs) Ryan puts it out there. We just analyze it.
0: (laughs) Amazing. Uh, So before you go, I just wanted to ask you on regards to uh, American Horror Story, and this, sorry to put you on the spot with this one, but do you have, what is your favorite Mm -hmm. American Horror Story season? Hotel. Hotel. Ah oh, damn. I, I'd hope I'd hoped you'd said coven. Yep. Just just so it could have been of nicely linked back to Nick Cage and his love of uh, New Orleans. <laughs>
1: <laughs> oh damn it. I can say coven if you want, no, 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 no. I did it's actually happen. go to New Orleans. Um Coven Coven is used to be my top favorite, but mm-hmm. then I revisited hotel quite recently and I'm just I, I love both of them, but hotel has just a bit more old Hollywood yes. stuff that I'm really into. But funnily, you should mention New Orleans, because I actually went there on a holiday a few years ago, on my last proper holiday, <laughs> and I visited the tomb that Nick Cage had bought for himself. Amazing. And also rewatched all of Coven while I was there. <laughs>
0: <laughs> that sounds like a... a p- sounds like a perfect trip watching uh yeah watching american horror story and seeing where nick cage is going to be buried which i find a fascinating and like i don't like terrifying terrifying thing um because yeah he he obviously he he has a weird link (laughs) to american horror story as well that
1: he owned um the Lollary mansion yeah yeah yeah, he did for a bit
0: which is just quite frankly, again, quite bizarre, but as like personally led me to, a, a which like, I, I'll say it now. Like if I say it, it will definitely happen. Uh, I have an episode planned that will come out after this, uh, with a historian from new Orleans who, uh, yeah, knows, knows a lot about that house, knows a lot about like Nick cages, like overground, uh, tomb. And, uh, I, d- I, guess, I, I guess i guess I, I don't know especially for yeah like for 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 fans of like american horror story as well might 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 be a lovely like intersection of that kind of nick cage and that real life history of that fascinating place that is new orleans oh that sounds amazing actually i
1: can't
0: <laughs> wait to listen to that yeah i i, I uh, there's so many weird and wonderful people uh, I've managed to speak to, and you have been a, a wonderful guest, Anna. Thank you so much for for joining me on this weird and strange journey, which is watching every Nicholas Cage film. Uh, before we sign off, where is the best place people can keep up to date with everything that you are doing?
1: oh gosh can someone help me uh as well i am on twitter probably that's the best place i'm on twitter at anna b demented and i am on instagram at happy Happy hollywood although that is mostly just pictures of my cat to be honest
0: (laughs) perfect well anna it's been an absolute pleasure having you on the podcast
1: thank you i love doing it thank you again for asking me
0: there we have it guys uh, I'm sure you agree with me that Anna was an amazing amazing guest uh, somebody who's just filled in for Mark Mode on uh, with entertainment which to me absolutely blows my mind be sure to listen back to that as well I'm sure you can get that wherever you get a podcast the BBC 5 Live uh, film review show uh, it was by Ben Bailey Smith and it was amazing if you're not listening to Eva Hover podcast get on it Final Girls is amazing The Next Supremes is amazing uh, as I believe we mentioned in this episode as well uh, Khalees Lockery of uh, The Next Supremes will be on this podcast at some point uh, just so so if you're a fan of Clarice uh, or if, if you're a fan yeah, yeah if, if you're if Yeah, if you're a fan of Cleash, look forward to that one. But um, hopefully, if if you've tuned in because you're a fan of Anna's, uh, hopefully there's other uh, guests in the back catalogue and things that are coming up as well, and films that you are into that you will want to participate in. Um, As I teased at the beginning of this, there is going to be a a competition, and that is to win one of uh, the caged-in... Superman Prince Uh, amazing artwork by Tim Hornsby I cannot stress enough how good he is as an artist and um, yeah you can buy those but this is your chance to win one and it's really simple to enter all you've got to do is via social media uh, or email just tell me what your favourite Nicolas Cage film is and why and to get yourself an added um entry into it please write that as well on apple Podcasts if you're an apple user uh just just i know it's a, bit, it's a bit it's a bit cheeky it's a way it's a way to get reviews and ratings and stuff like that but i think it's a it's a fun it's it's it's, it's a fun way and yeah you could you could win one of these amazing art prints that has uh, a unique Nicolas cage quote on the back so can't yeah, wait to read what you guys are your favourite films and why. Uh, all entries will be uh, counted and the winner will be decided on the 31st of August. So you have plenty of time to get involved, get, get emailing in, which is cagedinpodcast at gmail.com. As well as hit me up on all the social medias, which is Caged In Pod on Facebook, Twitter. And Instagram. So what do we have coming up next week for you? Well we have Nick Cage and Hayden Christensen in Outcast. And I will have not one but two guests for that. So I will have returning guest, Bob Turnbull, for his tenth time on the KC podcast to join me to talk about the film as well as a very special interview with james dormer the writer of outcast and somebody who self-confessed in his own twitter bio put i may have written the worst nicholas cage film ever so that's something definitely to look forward to so as always i have been pitch pessimist i have been caged in you have been amazing bye
1: It's family.